0: We have MyQA Ion and Ion RT from IBA for automated patient-specific QA for photon, electron and proton radiotherapy. And we also have MR Box from our AI suppliers at Therapanacea, allowing AI-powered, MR-only workflows for a more consistent and high-quality planning pathway. For SGRT,
1: Welcome to RadChat, the multi-award-winning first therapeutic radiographer-led oncology podcast. Welcome to podcast number 95. My name's is Jay McNamara and I'm joined by fellow host Namanjelka Anderson. Hi everyone. So a big thank you to our last guest, Samantha Bostock, who talked about her role as a therapeutic radiographer and her passion around supporting patients with lead effects. If you haven't had a chance yet, please do go and take a listen. So we're really pleased to introduce our guest, Naomi Clapworthy, who will be discussing her role as an acute oncology nursing consultant. Hi, Naomi. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Hi, guys. We love having a nurse on the podcast, largely because I think some people just think we're all about the therapeutic radiographers. But we are an oncology podcast and so we do like to include all of the
2: teams. It's amazing to have you representing today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Huge yeah, Thank you both for inviting me to join you today. Um, it's a real honour to be asked and a pleasure to be here. So thanks. Oh, thank you.
1: So Naomi, do you want to start by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you got into nursing?
2: Yeah, um, so I currently work as an acute oncology nurse consultant um, in sunny North Devon um, at our Barnstable um, site. So it's a really beautiful place uh, to live and work. I've lived here for about seven years. Um, As a trust, we've recently merged. um, We're now called the Royal Devon University Healthcare NHS Foundation Trust. Um, We have two acute hospital sites, one in the north and one in the east, and I lead the acute oncology team here in the north. Um, but you can probably tell from my accent uh, that I'm actually not from the southwest, but I'm actually from the Midlands. Um, so I started my nursing career um, as a healthcare assistant in Dudley um, at Russell's Hall Hospital um, on an oncology and haematology unit. Um, I worked both in the inpatient and outpatient setting and uh, this is where my love for cancer nursing um, really started. And The nursing leadership there um, enabled me to complete qualifications that meant that I could then go to university to complete my nurse training, um, with a view to going back uh, as a registered nurse. Um, I did go and complete my training in Worcester, so not too far away, uh, but I ended up meeting a boy, uh, and then I married that boy. um, (laughs) As it so often goes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah so meaning that I didn't return to Dudley uh, but stayed in Worcester as a newly qualified nurse um, but so thankful for all the input um, from so many people to name I don't want to name anyone out but um, who invested in me in my early years um, to enable me to go and do my nurse training and actually I was recently at a wedding and met all those people from 20 years ago that were you know looked after me when I was sort of 18, 19 as a healthcare assistant and um, it was so lovely to see everybody again but um so when I qualified as a nurse um I worked in sort of general medicine and then within the cancer care so on a in on a in an haematology ward but then had my sort of first taste of a, acute oncology at this point um but then this boy that I married wanted to move because he likes surfing so um moved to North Devon in 2015 um, and to, to really to help establish the acute oncology service um, in North Devon um, a quite a brand new service that they were developing here and I started as a as a nurse specialist but then over the years um, developed to a nurse consultant um and we started the team in 2015 with two part-time nurses and part-time admin support uh, to now having a, a great team of 12 providing a service that works across um, seven days. Uh, so we were very much a medic-led service to start, um, but with lots of investment in us as a team, um, we are predominantly a nurse-led service. So I went off and you know, all the staff are on their uh, master's pathways Um and it's just been fantastic to see how much it's grown, but we still very much work collaboratively within the MDT. Um, and my role is to lead the team and the service uh, and providing sort of an expert level of practice But and working across um, all four pillars uh, of advanced practice. And um, I do get asked quite a lot about the nurse consultant role and... Um, you know what that means and um, and I do you know really advocate for it within in each area not just within cancer but um, and to just to express the influence that it can have and the um, impact it can have on the team as well Um I sometimes see people how have you got to that position and i think well if i can then anybody who can really can and um, but it does it is inspiring for people as well and i think especially to see where i've come from not the normal route um you know i i've been at college four nights a week in the past trying to obtain the qualifications that i can um to be able to get to the position where i am today um and i feel very lucky and privileged to be in the role that i'm in um it's such An amazing job I I pinch myself all the time uh, to have such an impact in terms of clinical practice and uh, clinical input here still with patients but at the level that I'm at I'm very very lucky and I I do recognize that
3: why did you pick healthcare
2: why did I pick healthcare so um, going back to the beginning I didn't do very well in school and I didn't really um, for a number of reasons Um, and I sort of left education not in a great place and a number of my family members were in healthcare, and I wanted to help people and I you know got great satisfaction in doing that and I felt and and somebody a family member said what about nursing and I said I don't know if that I don't know if that's the right thing for me and they said well why don't you give it a go and so I looked um Online and saw saw a job advert for this local hospital as a healthcare assistant, and you did actually need qualifications to obtain that job. And uh, oh, anyway, I went for the interview, um, and they phoned me and said, um, uh, "We've given you, offering you this job." And I was like, "Gosh, I didn't think you'd give it to me." And she said, "But you, you've got no bad habits. We can mould you into whatever we want because you've never done it before." <laughs> and i was like oh okay that's amazing so that's how i sort of got into it influenced by family members and the fact that i just wanted to help people um and then just loved the nursing role and desperately wanted to do my nurse training and was just really supported in doing that and recognizing that actually without the support of so many other people i wouldn't be in the position that i'm in today even to do my nurse training so I think that's what sort of inspires me to do that for others as well, when I can, you know, I I get great satisfaction in seeing others develop. And um, I think that's because so many people helped me in my journey that I just want to help people in theirs as well, Um, even if they don't want to (laughs) a lot of the time. Um, But, yeah, to answer your question? Absolutely.
1: And in terms of oncology, did you know much about cancer going into a nursing role? Is that something that you
2: you thought through your nurse training, yes, I definitely want to work with cancer patients. Yeah, I think because as a pre-reg, um, I'd experienced those tu- those years on the ward in my sort of healthcare assistant role. And definitely that was an area that I really felt that I wanted to go back to. Um, yeah, I think once you've worked within cancer, it's really hard not to, um, to go back. But I really valued the fact that the first few years of my registration, i was in a different setting so in sort of general medicine and i worked in sort of infectious diseases stroke uh respiratory gastro a bit of everything really we were sort of moved around in as a newly qualified so um but i also don't think you need to have that either there's loads of you know talk is that you've got to do this when you qualify you've got to go there and i just don't think that's necessarily um true i think you do need to maybe search around a little and find something that you're interested in but if if something really a speciality really hits you and you that's where you want to go then you know go f- go for it don't be influenced by loads of other people.
3: So Naomi lots of people know what oncology is but what is acute oncology?
2: That is a very good question. Um, I think the simplest way to describe acute oncology um, is acute cancer care and sort of the management of patients Who develop um, acute disease-related complications or cancer-related cancer treatment-related complications, Um, and it's about making sure that this group of patients are managed um, quickly and in the most appropriate setting. Um, I think how acute oncology services are provided is something that we are sort of working through at the moment, um, as the interpretation and delivery of services sort of varies from place to place. So. If I give you an example of, of my service here in North Devon, so we have sort of um, three streams, but our scope of practice is to care for patients and manage patients with complications of disease, complications of their treatment, um, and then new cancers diagnosed as an inpatient. So that's our scope. But we also lead the cancer of unknown primary service and the immunotherapy service, um, and we've got the vague symptom service within that with members of our team delivering that as well. Um, and I, but I know that's not the case in all places. And we have um, an ambulatory model, so almost like an oncology SDEC. So we're based on a chemo unit where we're able to see patients um, here rather than in an ED or even go to their GP, they can come in. Um, and that's great. Well, I mean, we, last month we saw over a hundred patients here in that ambulatory setting. So we've got uh, a team that look after those patients um, on a day-to-day basis. We run the helplines, the um, 24-7 helpline, we we run that in hours, so 8 till 6, Monday to Friday, and then we work over a weekend and bank holiday, but for shorter hours. Out of hours, that helpline's picked up by our clinical site team, um, who are trained in our triage tool. Uh, and can assess patients but they take about out of hours about 4% of our calls so a lot of the calls come in through the helpline uh, in in the working hours and then from that if they if a patient needs assessing then we'll bring them in to us um, and then also we do all the inpatient reviews as well um, so any uh, acute cancer patient that's admitted uh, will see uh, in the hospital wherever they may be so we don't have Uh, an oncology or haematology ward here we're a very small DGH so our patients can be anywhere Um, so we make sure they're seen uh, within 24 hours of an an admission uh, and then reviewed daily until then our input is no longer um, required and hopefully what we're doing is by all of these services reducing admissions uh, reducing length of stay for our patients if they are here and we've seen that so when we were a five-day service we did a trial of a seven-day service and I think our length of stay reduced from sort of eight, average length of stay from like eight to four days. So we could see the impact that we were having by working over the weekend and helping to discharge patients. Um, and improving patient experience. Um, you know, they don't want to be in hospital if they don't need to be um, and getting them home with a real clear plan of care and real, um, a really great follow up as well for these patients. Um, they feel really supported that we're going to call them back. And the, and the medical teams, you know, they were really supported that actually we're keeping an eye on them. We're monitoring their bloods. We're, um, you know, making sure that they have re- a really safe follow up. It was really important. Uh, We do also have a a nurse led paracentesis service here as well that we've established, and that was due to again patients being admitted um, into hospital for that procedure, uh, not having enough staff trained to be able to deliver that, and patients then waiting and obviously really symptomatic and uncomfortable. So um, we're able to now deliver that service as a same day service here. Um, on the unit, which has made a huge impact uh, for our patients. But um, I recognise that that's not the same everywhere. And so acute oncology and the service uh, is very different um, from from place to place. Um, And that's what we're sort of looking at within um, our our UK, AOS, our society, um, how we can help support and develop services. Um, but I am extremely passionate about this service and its delivery, um, just witnessing firsthand the difference it makes to patients. And, and I honestly um, believe it's such a vital service to have in place for our cancer patients. And I know how valued um, it is by our patients with all the feedback that we receive. And, and I also know there are so many places across the UK that are also doing amazing things and have fantastic services in place. Um, and that's why I think it's really important to share what we're doing um, with each other as well and you know shining a spotlight on services that are well established to help others as well um i think it's really important so we're not the only people that have this type of model there's lots of different models and i think it is about assessing what's needed within your area so it's not a one-size-fits-all approach either um yeah i love acute oncology <laughs> <computer>. <laughs>
1: hey, Amy, i'm really intrigued yeah. is it really diverse yeah. or do you get a lot of patients presenting you know through some of those services with kind of consequences of treatment or is it mainly you know I don't know presenting with pain whilst they're on treatment what is it that you actually see patients for typically or is it yeah. case that it's really diverse and that's part of acute oncology
2: yeah it is really diverse I never really know what's going to happen on a, a day-to-day basis you know you come in it, it's a bit like that ED experiences you never know what's going to come through the door and we have people you know we don't have a a service that people can just drop in without contacting us first but of course patients do they know we're here and they know we're open and we know the difficulties that um, primary care face with sort of access and we are an easy quick point of access for our patients and we don't have really strict criteria I would say here and that's maybe because of our you know the population that we cover we're able to do that but um, if a patient contacts us and and we can't help specifically we will find out somebody that can and that's the sort of um, motto that we we have really and we're all about um, improving the patient pathway and finding out whatever we can do to support that and improve. I mean, looking at our data, we've split, we do you know, collect data and look at our patients contacting us with complications of disease treatment, it's about 50% are complications from the treatment they're receiving, whatever that may be. And then the rest is about the disease process, so um, it could be disease progression, it could be um, pain, you know, we work really closely with palliative care and our local hospice as well and palliative care team to support our patients but it's a whole host of things, um, to be honest. And I think that's where the difficulty lies when we're looking at helplines because um, who, who's managing what and how they're set up in certain places differ as well. So um, yeah, it's very, di- very diverse.
3: Naomi, we like a bit of controversial questions or hot potatoes. I've got one for you. As we know with the NHS at the moment, workforce is the most important thing, the service you're offering is incredible and as you said, not everywhere has it, especially as you're a district general hospital, how are you managing to keep up your workforce, so I mean the bigger hospitals obviously are struggling for staff, chemotherapy units I know even where I work, I mean they are cancelling chemos every now and then still, how are you managing to keep this workforce going?
2: yeah i mean we're in the same position as everywhere else in terms of workforce there's no there's no difference to that at all we've been in the same situation where unfortunately we've had to uh you know look at cancelling certain treatments because of workforce restrictions um in terms of our workforce do you, you mean sort of in acute oncology how have have been able to keep that i think you know we've really invested in um the team and um over over the years and made sure that each individual has a clear plan um in place of you know of what they want to um not only what they want to achieve but just investing in them as individuals and they're really invested in the service, I think they can see the difference that it makes and so people want to work within the team and within this service. We don't really have an issue recruiting into acute oncology. Lots of the staff stay because of the fact that they like the role and the job that they're doing and they can see the difference that it makes. But it doesn't mean that it's really not really difficult and really hard and we have some really stressful um and awful days because we do just like anywhere um but actually you know i think i don't know i feel like it's a, t- it's a question you should ask the team <laughs> rather than rather than me um but yeah i think it's, it's really difficult you've just got to you've got to keep going and i think um we every morning we have a check-in and um we sit around Not very long; it's very short. But each member of the team checks in, and um, previously you'd come into work and you just get going. There's patients on the phone. There's things need doing. You just you just crack on, don't you? But it's really important to just stop, spend a few minutes going round and checking in, and making sure that everyone's okay and is in a position to be able to do their do their job that day. And there might be things impacting that Um, and that's really important as a team that we all need to know that to help support each other Um, because if you don't do that I mean it can all just fall apart so um, we do that every morning and I'd say that's really key for our our team and the way that we work together because there's absolutely no way as well that we could work in acute oncology without working collaboratively and it's not just us as a team that work it's acute medicine it's palliative care it's so many other specialities that are involved in acute oncology I mean, I can't leave today without saying that acute oncology is everybody's business because Philippa Jones would kill me if I didn't say that. I mean, it totally is. It's like a mantra, isn't it? <laughs> it is, yeah. It is, but it is so true. So, um, but the, as a team, that's what we do. Check in and check out is really important. But, you know, working together is key to have a successful service and deliver a, a successful service. But recognising that, um, you know, workforce is an issue and will will continue to be until there's sufficient investment so
3: i think you highlighted a really good bit of role modeling just as uh, as you said you're, you're the team lead i think the past few years has really shown where leadership has been lacking in the nhs around provision of care but that that sounds amazing that's that makes me want to work there and <laughs> by the sea as well so um <laughs> with everything going on at the moment how are you finding being a senior leader in a nursing role
2: that's a really good question and not one that i'm asked very often that's uh how am i finding it um really it's challenging um i've just completed can i give this a bit of a plug the nhs leadership academy rosalind franklin program and i don't know if either of you to have completed that have you both done it no you've heard of it um and that's been a really interesting sort of nine months working through that, um, reflecting on my my own role and the team and just the whole system in general, um, my, looking at my organisation. And it's really helped me to see the bigger picture because I think I was quite focused in my own um, area. And now, actually, um, I'm starting to think a little bit more what a wider and strategically i suppose whereas previously i didn't and i think i'm really lucky to work to be part of um ucon's board i'm a board member for ucons and a board member for ukos because um being part of both of those boards and being sat with the people around the table um has really um helped me and i mean real inspirational people um within those boards um and has helped me to develop um within my leadership role but it is it is difficult isn't it and i think that's why we you you can never work in in isolation um and you have to be support each other um i was watching um what's that formula one program you know on netflix I don't know if you've oh, seen it and there was amazing. a part when Love it. yeah right to survive. that's it yeah and that um christian horner said um the higher you rise the sharper the knives did you hear that quote and i thought oh gosh that's awful and i was thinking is that is that's the same within healthcare and actually unfortunately i haven't experienced that but that's quite terrifying to hear that 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 can be the case in, in some sort of um organizations but um fortunately i've i've not experienced that and it's all being uh you know relative <laughs> relatively relatively nice um but yeah i'm i have great supervision with people that i've met from twitter actually um and i meet with regularly and we share share how we're doing what's going on um, and that's been a real great source of support for me um personally and professionally as well
1: yeah big shout out to leadership qualifications in general i think it definitely helps because quite often people who are in roles never necessarily set out to achieve them and um, they've kind of worked their way up the ladder and maybe found themselves in those roles without necessarily ever having managed people before so I think sometimes that can really help and also having role models and um, you know we've had people on the podcast before that maybe haven't had a role model so they go into a leadership role never maybe having that positive influence so utilizing some of the leadership qualifications and also um, you know that supervision and mentorship is is really important.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think and just um, being really open and honest as a leader and sharing when you don't get things right because I mean my team will tell you I don't get things right all the time and I have made mistakes and but it's owning that and saying look I'm really this is why I made this decision but I didn't get it right um you know i'll try you know hopefully next time but it's sharing that with the team and not just not holding it all in um i think is is really important as well i mean it it yeah it's, it's difficult but so rewarding as well at, at the same time
1: so Naomi you mentioned um, specifically about the UK um, UK acute oncology society um, of which I'm, I'm really passionate about being a therapeutic radiographer and leading the radiotherapy arm of that and um, can you tell us about what it is that you do and why people might want to get involved?
2: Yeah so it's um, a fairly new society that's um really I think unique because it's made up of such a big sort of multidisciplinary group of healthcare professionals across the UK. Um, what's great about it, it's not just cancer specialists uh, but also specialists from acute medicine, palliative care, that's allied health professionals, primary care um, and we have a number of subgroups within the society. So yeah, Joe, you lead our uh, radiotherapy group um, but we're still really developing as a society uh, with us now recently having our own secretariat. Uh, We have a great website uh, with lots of information and resources available, Uh, it's free to join as a member, um, so please do access that. Uh, We are aiming to host educational webinars, we've already run a couple of study days. Uh, We're leading the acute oncology session at the UK Oncology Forum in, in June this year, which is always a great session and a great feedback and I think it was sort of the highest attending um, session in their programme and we've got an acute oncology conference um that we're planning hopefully uh, for 2024 so there's lots going on lots to be involved with we you know love people wanting to get involved with stuff so um please do um get involved so our our chair is dr ernie marshall um who is also leading a project looking into helpline provision across the uk which is also really exciting um This is in the early stages with quite a few people involved. Naiman, I know that you're involved in this as well. Um, And we just wanted to scope out exactly what is being provided um, and by who. Um, And from this, being able to make recommendations regarding um, provision.
3: I suppose talking about the triage tool, uh, the the triage system, I suppose, before even looking into tools and how have they maybe developed and do you see a role for allied health professionals within that triage system or pathway
2: yeah no absolutely yes i definitely do um i think we should be working more collaboratively with all uh, professions and yeah i definitely do see a role um for yeah for more work in terms of um training i think it's really we're doing a project at the moment so um So we use the UConn's triage tool, Um, it's a risk assessment tool created in response um, to the fact that every cancer patient uh, should have access to a 24 hour helpline uh, when on um, systemic anti-cancer treatment and there was a lack of guidelines and training for staff uh, who were undertaking telephone assessment of cancer patients, Um, so there was no sort of triage system in place. Um, and the triage tool, the ones that we use, the UConn triage tool, was created in, I think, 2010 um, with an update in 2016 to include assessment of immunotherapy treatments. Um, well, we were actually gonna be reviewing this tool again later this year. So if anyone wants to get involved in that review, please do let me know as well, there's another plug there. Um, but the triage tool itself helps to, helps uh, the assessor to determine the severity of the patient's symptoms um, and then direct them to a level of a assessment deemed appropriate. And it uses um, a RAG rating, so a red, amber, green. Um, it was heavily piloted with a, a number of sites and had really positive feedback. And it's really widely used across the UK. Um, and in fact, I think in a recent survey, had hundred percent of sites all used use this triage tool uh, and it's also been translated into several other languages um, so used across the w- world um, it's a great tool it's extremely safe um, however we've recognized that staff being contin uh, being continually trained in the tool has been a real issue uh, for some sites so we're developing a telephone triage training package um, that will be available for free on e-learning for all healthcare staff to access um, so yes i think all professions will be able to access that and complete um that training and then competency and practice uh, will still need to be completed by sites uh, but this will help uh, sites deliver the foundation to that telephone triage and assessment how to use the tool and then the sort of governance around this Uh, and we're hoping that this will be available um, in the autumn but i think through developing this we've really we've realized that actually no one really gets any training on telephone uh, assessment in general or, you know, how to communicate via telephone. And um, so within we've incorporated that within the training. And we've spent time, we were really lucky to go to Newcastle and spend time with the um, ambulance service there that deliver the 111 and 999 calls and look at their training packages and what they how they train their staff and then um, able to develop our modules with some of their... Uh, what they use, um, and then obviously we have specifically have the training on the UCONs triage tool that we use. But um, it's it actually a couple of the modules will be able, people will be able to access, and in terms of just telephone assessment and, and how to do that safely. So um, yeah, it's really exciting that we've been able to obtain funding to be able to produce this, and I know that a lot of places around the country, I get emails every week asking about. Uh, training delivery delivery of the training so this is going to really really help people um so yeah we're very excited about that being launched in in the autumn it's funny you say you it's
1: funny you say that naomi about um actually assessing patients because within my role as a lecturer at university we actually have to teach the pre-registration students how to speak on the phone just generally just a kind of general chit
2: chat and also to use a landline phone so it is that Um, within your is that within your module like your curriculum that that's part? is it is preparation
1: for practice because it's really funny but you don't think about it because we're of a different generation and a different age group but students aren't using landlines they're using mobile phones so you know how to make a call how to how to direct phone calls, how to like use the old star phone system where you transfer calls. Um, they don't have experience of it. And then there's also the confidence issue, which is because they're not used to necessarily having a telephone conversation and they rely maybe on on FaceTiming or or potentially just on texting or messaging. Um, they can find it really daunting so is it it's it's really interesting isn't it that pre-registration using a phone but then obviously from your perspective it's how to actually assess and and really get the most out of patients through a telephone conversation yeah
2: absolutely and thinking about the environment that you're in when you're when you're taking that call you know uh, things like that are really, really important. That people forget, you know. And you're in a busy office; people are talking behind you. All those sorts of things will impact on what you're hearing and the way that you're able to assess. Um, so, hopefully, these modules help support that. But it is, it is really interesting. Even people are quite often are doing voice notes now, aren't they? People, I find that all the time. I mean, I'm getting, up clearly getting old. But I had a patient yesterday, and and they um, don't have a phone. Um, they refuse to have a phone. Uh, they've got a landline, but they haven't got a mobile phone. And they so they said anything that needs to be, you know, they were worried about um, appointments being texts and all those sorts of things, um, and wanted to make sure we're still doing letters um, to the home. And they weren't very old, but they just um, don't they don't want to engage in the uh, digital world. I think. Um, for one reason or another, but we have to remember that, don't we? And not—it's not, it's not, all, not everyone is going to be able to, um, you know, get involved with these things. But um, yeah.
3: With the red, amber, green system, how do you manage patients' expectations? Because obviously they're calling in with a problem, and they might want a solution straight away. But if it doesn't meet the threshold criteria to maybe be admitted.
2: Um, I mean we do in our pre-treatment here in our pre-treatment visit assessments we do go through the um, uh, sort of triaging and what to expect so if they did phone they would be assessed using a tool and based on that would then we would give the you know whatever advice that may be or you might need to come in for a further assessment or you may need to be admitted i don't i think um in terms of admission patients that are phoning the first thing is to for an assessment and that would be a face-to-face assessment so if somebody felt that over a telephone they need to be admitted well that's not guaranteed you'd come into us first and we would assess you and then have that conversation um based on our assessment and further investigation. So, um, but, I mean, it is about being well-prepared and educated prior to even starting treatment, I think, a lot of these things and managing those expectations right from the start in whatever form that we be, may be. Now, we, we're we about to start using uh, um, the Cancer Research UK treatment records, which I know we're a bit behind to most places. But even within there is a great red-amber-green for the patient to look, to look through. Um, to know about and recognise that when they phone, this is what we're basing our assessment um, on. So it gives them a guide of what, what we will need to see them, f- you know, for we, in, in terms of their symptoms. Uh, we've also got, we do have an app, the My Sunrise app, I don't know if you've heard of um, that, that we use in the South West and for our trust here is a great source of information for patients and it's got the triaging assessment um, that we use within... Um, so the red, amber, green rating for patients to see as well with information on what to do with certain symptoms. So I feel like they are well prepared um, as they can be. But of course, when you bombard patients with so much information, it tends to just go over their heads. And so uh, we recognise that as well. Um, and so just making sure that we we take time to explain everything that we're doing and why we're doing what we're doing and making the decisions that we are um Is really important. It's about communication, isn't it?
3: Yeah, exactly. And I suppose with all the different difficult conversations that you have, how do you look after each other? I know you mentioned your huddles and checking in, but aside from that, because I'm sure you see some very stressful scenarios.
2: Yeah, I think the the fact that we um, don't work in complete isolation is um, really key. And I don't think any service should have that at all. And I know there's certain sites that are, you know, people that I know around the country that you know work completely on their own i think that is a is a recipe for disaster actually um and making sure that you are able to talk things through with other people giving people the space to be able to do that um making sure that you're you know giving time to uh the staff when they need it um being compassionate in your you know we we use that word we throw it around don't we but do we actually are we really you know demonstrating compassion not only with our patients but with staff members as well it's so difficult I mean some of the conversations not even just in acute oncology but across um, cancer in all areas that people have to come across and deal with it's really hard not to take that home at the end of the day isn't it um, so it's make, making sure that we have the space and the time and, and potential resources if you want to access that sort of thing we do have a counselling service here that we're able to access as staff members so and i know there's you know that's available in other areas as well it's yeah it's really important
1: so naomi we're reaching the end of the podcast episode you'll be pleased (laughs) to know um so we always end our podcast episodes with top tips have you got any Top tips around acute oncology
2: that you want to leave us with? Um, yeah, I think uh, join UK AOS, uh, a great society focusing on uh, helping acute oncology services develop. So definitely get involved and have a look at the website. UCONS, another great nursing uh, society. Uh, get yeah, have a look, have a look at UCONS free membership for that as well. We, great opportunities to um, join our AOS MIG. Um I would think I'd say if you want to develop your acute oncology service or you're looking at, at acute oncology more, see where look at your area, see where the gaps are. Um, we always ask how can we improve the patient pathway when, you know, if a cancer patient's unwell, where is it not working? What can we do um, to improve this? I think uh, it's, i think i said before it's not a one-size-fits-all approach model um there's lots of opportunities to improve the pathway um and it means collaborate collaborating with lots of other areas um to get the best service and um and to remember that acute oncology is everyone's business i probably need to finish with that don't I? today
1: <laughs> absolutely and i suppose for anyone who's listening to this who has aspirations to work generally in oncology there is the aspirant cancer career and education development program and um, that's going to be available for people from the 24th of may and um, which is very exciting so keep an eye out and we will tag that along with all of your other suggestions naomi um, along with this podcast episode so thank you so much for joining us um, it's been a pleasure we've learned lots and great as i said at the start to have a nursing colleague on the podcast So thank you for listening to Rad Chat. Your hosts today have been myself, Jay McNamara and and Numajog Anderson. If you're utilising the podcast for CPD purposes, consider the reflective questions posted along with links to resources and literature that we've discussed. To receive your accredited CPD certificate, please complete the Google form linked with the podcast. Our next guest to feature will be Laura Allington, who is the operational lead for the Proton Beam Therapy Unit at the University College London Hospital. So thank you all for listening and take care.